In our Old Covenant series so far, we've studied the very nature of the Old Covenant as a works-based, conditional covenant. Sure, it was gracious, of course, but if there were conditions to be fulfilled, uh, and the performance of said conditions or the non-performance would result in either blessing or cursing. And so in that sense, it was works-based. We've considered different types of Old Covenant law, and we've considered the basis of the historic threefold distinction between moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. And most recently, we've studied the physical tabernacle. We come tonight to the introductory message in a series of sermons on the priests. God willing, we will study their clothing and their ordination and their work in coming weeks, which will lead us straight into a study of the Old Covenant uh, Jewish calendar, which we actually providentially read about tonight in Numbers 28, various daily and weekly and monthly and annual offerings, and we'll talk about the feasts and all that kind of stuff. We'll proceed accordingly from there. But tonight is merely an introductory message in a series of sermons on the Old Covenant priests. And so it will be pretty basic and pretty general tonight because I'm trying to zoom out. We're kind of zooming in sometimes and looking at something very specific in the Old Covenant. And sometimes we're zooming out and we're looking at something a little more broadly. Tonight we're zooming out and we're just looking at the priesthood and sort of beginning to wrap our minds around the Old Covenant priesthood. And I want to begin with a very obvious observation, which is that all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. We know from the passages that I read just before the sermon, uh, Numbers chapter 1, 47 to 54, and Exodus 28, verse 1, that this is the case. The Levites had a special designation in ancient Israel. Not to serve as warriors, but to have care over the tabernacle. So Numbers chapter 1 records for us a census of Israel's warriors, but the Levites were not included. They were not listed among the number of Israel's warriors. Rather, when the Israelites would move camp, it was the Levites who would do the teardown of the tabernacle. It was the Levites who would carry the tabernacle to the next place of camp, and it was the Levites who would set the tabernacle up again when the people reached their destination. So the Levites were set apart from the congregation in a special way. But it is only a subset of the Levites, and not each and every one of the Levites, who are appointed by God as priests for the people. In Exodus 28 and verse 1, we read that those Levites who are also, not just Levites, but Aaron's sons, those are the subset of Levites appointed by God to be priests. Therefore, in ancient Israel, you either were a priest or you weren't. If you were not, you couldn't change that. You couldn't appoint yourself a priest. Nor could you get someone else to appoint you as a priest on the basis of uh, exchange for money or a favor of some sort. This was not a um, system which allowed for people to become priests or stop being priests. If you were one of Aaron's sons, 
you were a priest. And if you weren't, you weren't. It was inflexibly fixed by God who was a priest and who was not a priest. So could Moses' descendants be priests? The answer to that is no. Because Moses was Aaron's brother. And so both Moses and Aaron were Levites. Obviously, Moses' sons were not Aaron's sons. And so even Moses' children couldn't be priests. Nor could anyone else in the whole Levitical tribe. Only Aaron's sons could be priests. Could Moses' sons or any other Levites help tear down, carry, and set up the tabernacle again, though? Yes, and in fact, they were required to do their part in that matter. That was the job of all the Levites, not just the priests, exclusively. These are the sort of details that we can easily gloss over as we read through the Old Covenant. And so it's helpful just to note these things, synthesize them, and clarify them in our minds as we go through. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Now, we will come more specifically to the duties of priests in the weeks ahead. But in this introductory message, I just want to provide you with a very high-level summary of the priest's work. Broadly speaking, the duties of the priest were to represent the people to God and to represent God to the people. They were to act as intermediaries between God and the people. We know enough about the Old Covenant by this point to agree that at least these basic functions are well established by Scripture, don't we? After all, could anyone just go into the most holy place and meet with God? Could anyone just go into the holy place and burn incense? We've read uh, in our uh, Sunday readings about those who said, hey, who set you apart? What makes you so special? Why can't we have the same access to God as you have? And we saw how God dealt with that. There really was a designation of the uh, priests as those who were allowed to go in and as those who were allowed to offer incense to God and as those who were allowed to approach the holy place was restricted to priests, and the most holy place was restricted to high priests. And need but once a year. So if the ceremonies were to take place in there, which would be for the sake of all the people, they would be done by the priests as representatives of the people before God. Someone couldn't just say, well, you know what? I think all God's people are special. So I'm going in there. That would uh, be okay in, under the Old Covenant. And who was appointed to pronounce a blessing upon the people of Israel on God's behalf or to declare them clean after an infection? We haven't quite got so far in our Old Covenant series to have dealt with this explicitly, but you've likely read about this sort of thing in your own personal devotions and I suspect that our study thus far has given you enough information to make a pretty good hypothesis as to the answer of that question. The correct answer is the priests. So not only do the priests go in there 
and do things on behalf of the people. But also the priests come out and do things on behalf of God with respect to the people. They would do things like bless the people and inspect them and declare them clean after an infection, among other things. I'm just naming a couple of examples. Not trying to get into the weeds or the nitty gritty tonight, but I'm just trying to show you that the priests act on behalf of the people toward God and on behalf of God toward the people. Let's consider one more obvious point about the Old Covenant priests. They had privileged access to God. Again, who could go into the holy place but the priests? And who could go into the most holy place but the high priest? No one. Therefore, who could eat bread with God in a place where he himself is the light? Symbolized by the bread of the presence and the lampstand opposite. Who could offer up prayers in the very presence of God, symbolized by the altar of incense right at the curtain of the most holy place? Who beheld the fullness of the glory and the splendor of God in his earthly tabernacle? Only the priests. This point has been adequately covered in past weeks, so I won't belabor it. But I mention it by way of reminder as it's relevant to our study tonight. So the priests, all the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. Those who were priests represented the people to God and God to the people, and they had privileged access to God. Very, very, very zoomed out. Very, very basic overview and summary of the Old Covenant priesthood here. Now we come to a pressing question, which is going to take up the bulk of our uh, time tonight. Who or what are the new covenant realities which correspond to the old covenant priesthood? Who or what are the new covenant people or realities or things or whatever that correspond to the old covenant priesthood? Let's consider now the typology of the priesthood. And typology is just a big word that is basically getting at this concept that we've become familiar with over the last several months, which is sort of the idea of prefiguring something, foreshadowing something. And so the lambs prefigure the Lamb of God and takes away the sin of the world. The kings of ancient Israel are types of Jesus, who is the Davidic king who will reign over God's people, so on and so forth. Let's consider the typology of the priesthood. What are priests types of? What do they signify? What do they foreshadow? Well, ultimately, and this should be no surprise to you, the priesthood prefigures Jesus Christ, our great high priest. All of the priests are types of Christ, who is the great high priest. The book of Hebrews explicitly identifies Jesus as our great high priest, and it goes into great detail in explaining why Christ is a better, a superior priest than all of these old covenant priests, and why his priesthood is more ultimate and transcends and supersedes the Levitical priesthood 
we're not going to get into all that tonight, but just I want to just make that obvious point that Christ is a um, is the ultimate and central fulfillment of the typology of the Old Testament priesthood, and of course we'll be referring to that more and more and uh, unfolding that and unpacking that in greater detail in the coming weeks. First Timothy. 2.5 tells us that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So in the 21st century, who do we need to go into God's presence to represent us there on our behalf? Who do we need to act as an intermediary to bring God down to us? If I, in the 21st century, want to have a relationship with God Almighty, but I'm down here, as it were, and He's up there, as it were, who can be the go-between between me and God? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is the central and ultimate fulfillment of everything that the Old Covenant priesthood is uh, pointing towards and is a, is a tight uh, again, we'll explore this further in future weeks, and I, I don't think what I'm saying tonight is really rocket science, or surprising, or unexpected, as we begin a study on the priesthood. I think that that's something that we grasp, as Hebrews has taught us, the things pertaining to the Old Covenant represent ultimately the things pertaining to Christ and his ministry. And so I think, again, we've covered enough of the Old Covenant to expect that I would say what I just did say, even though I haven't explicitly said it as yet in our sermon series. Now, I want to leave off that point. And what I would like to do with the rest of our time is develop the concept of another fulfillment of the typology, an additional fulfillment of the typology, the foreshadowing that the old covenant priesthood gives us of a new covenant reality. And that additional fulfillment is this. The old covenant priesthood corresponds to believers in Christ Jesus in the New Covenant. The Old Covenant priesthood corresponds to New Covenant believers in the New Covenant. And the world is represented by the rest of the Israelites. Who has access to God but believers? And who acts and speaks on God's behalf in this world, but believers. And who is not welcome in behind the veil, as it were, into the most holy place, but unbelievers. See, many assume it is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, for example, 
that the old covenant priesthood is version 1.0 of the ordained ministry of the church, and that the ordained ministry of the new covenant people of God is version 2.0. So the pastors and deacons and bishops and cardinals and the pope and so forth are the new, new covenant correspondents to the old covenant priesthood. This is a prevalent thought among the reformed also, that the new covenant pastors are the corresponding reality to the old covenant priesthood. But what we read in scripture is that all the people of God under the new covenant it's providential and I, I point this out from time to time just how without planning things like this happen what did we read today in our service uh, what did we read this evening we read Numbers 28 which I've already referred to and we read 1 Peter 2 which I'm about to refer to I am just constantly astounded by how in the providence of God we come up in sermon series and we come up in just orderly readings of God's Word on relevant stuff time and time again. That's besides the point, but I like to draw it out when it's there because I'm just astounded by God's providential care um, over the teaching ministry of His church. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, which we've already read tonight, uh, quite unplanned, just in the order of our readings, but here we are looking at it again more closely tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, who is Peter writing to? To the apostles and the prophets and the pastors and teachers? Now, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he goes on and on. He's just speaking to God's elect people, his chosen people. Exiles, away from our heavenly home, in Babylon, as it were. This is the imagery that Peter is conjured up. He's just speaking to God's people. And in 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So here are the Jewish and Gentile believers, not located in one geopolitical state, but scattered throughout the world, living in Babylon. But together, these people from every tribe and language and people and nation make a chosen race, a holy nation, one people of God, all the people of God. A royal priesthood. A holy priesthood. 
each and every one of these elect exiles in Babylon. In Revelation, we read this, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, no, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9 is not the right reference. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. There you go, I put in a 9 for a 6. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, to whom is he writing? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. He is writing not to the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. He is writing to the churches, the people of God. To him who loves us. Who's the us? Well, let's go on and see what it says. And freed us from our sins by his blood. Have you been freed from your sins by his blood? Well, then you're part of the us. And made us a kingdom. Priests to his God. Revelation chapter 5. Verse 9. And 10. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. This is comprehensive. This is all the people of God. Verse 10, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. We see clearly taught in the pages of Scripture that all of God's people are priests. Each and every one of God's people are priests. That multitude so large that no one can count it from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jewish believers, Gentile believers, one holy nation, which is also a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom or a nation which consists of priests. So the priests are not a subset of the nation. As opposed to in ancient Israel, when the priests were a subset of the nation. Remember that all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, let alone those of the other tribes of Israel, they were not priests either. The priests were a subset of the nation in Old Covenant Israel, but under the New Covenant, the nation consists of priests. Everyone who is in the nation is a priest. Now, if we flip back to Exodus chapter 19, we read this. In verse 5. Well, you know what? Let me, let me read from verse 1 to give us a, a better sense of the immediate context. 
On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So here they are, they've just arrived at Sinai. This is the context of this. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So again, he's talking to everybody, right? He doesn't say, thus shall you say to the Levites. He says, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, which includes all of Jacob's sons, which become the 12 tribes. Verse 4 of Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if, and this goes back to some of our studies from months ago, if there's conditionality here to this covenant, God enters it graciously with the people of Israel. It contains revelation of the gospel, which is not works-based, but grace-based. It shows us, it prefigures for us, it teaches us explicitly about Christ and His grace. God didn't have to enter into it with them, but did, even though they didn't merit it and didn't deserve it, and in that sense it's a gracious covenant. But it is conditional. There are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, and there is a big if right here in Exodus 19 when the people arrive at Sinai. Now therefore, Exodus 19 verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what we see here is that there would be a sanctifying of all the people. There would be a setting apart of all the people if the people would only act righteously and obediently. If they would keep God's covenant, there would be an appointment by God, an induction by God of all the people into the priesthood. So that God would have a nation of priests and a kingdom of priests which lived among all the nations of the earth. And they would be holy and set apart ones and they would all have privileged access unto God. And they would be the ones that everyone else on the earth would know Hey, these guys have access to God. We read of later on in the prophets of a, of a time that God promises in the then future when the nations would take hold of one Jew and say, hey, teach us about God. Take us to God. Lead us to God. This is the hypothetical future of the old covenant nation of Israel if they will just obey God his voice, and keep his covenant. But what we see happen in the rest of the uh, Old Testament scriptures is that the nation of Israel does not keep God's covenant, does not obey his voice, and does not end up experiencing the blessings promised for obedience, but rather the curses promised for disobedience. 
And this hypothetical is never realized where Israel becomes a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now we saw, when we studied this months ago, that it's not as if the Old Covenant was plan A, that God intended to bring everything that he had for his people to pass through the Old Covenant, but, you know, he decided after a while, you know what, this is really not going to work. I have to think of something better. And so he came up with the New Covenant. That's not how we should conceive of it. That's not how it transpired. Rather, God's plan was always for everything that he has for his people to be brought to pass in and through Christ Jesus. The Old Covenant is given to us then not to be a salvific covenant, but to be an instructive covenant. To teach us, to instruct us. Condemnation has always been on the basis of the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden, which Adam broke, and he plunged all of his posterity into guilt and misery. People were condemned already before Sinai. So nobody who went to hell went to hell on the basis of the Sinai covenant being broken, on the basis of the old covenant being broken. Everybody at this time, and even those who lived under this covenant, if they went to hell, they went to hell because Adam broke the covenant in the beginning and they were in Adam. Likewise, nobody who went to heaven at this time, nobody who went to heaven under, at the time when they were living under the old covenant went to heaven on the basis of the old covenant. No one went to heaven on the basis of their covenant keeping, on their fulfillment of the if, Hey, I obeyed your voice, so give me the blessings attached to obedience. Nobody went and pled their case before God at the end of their life, after which it is appointed uh, to man once to die and after that the judgment. No one went to God at that appointed time and said, I kept your covenant, therefore give me the covenantal blessing. Rather, it was always in and through faith in the Messiah, who was revealed in the Old Covenant, who was prefigured and foreshadowed, and there was typology of Him in the Old Covenant. We were instructed about Christ and about the Gospel in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant itself, we've been seeing this over the last several months, richly unfolds to us the things of Christ, doesn't it? But it was by faith in the things revealed. It was by laying hold of the fact that we need a lamb. We need God's gracious condescension to dwell with us and be our God and take us to be his people, though we don't deserve it. We need washing. We need a substitute. We need representation. And God has provided these things. And I believe on the basis of God's grace that I may be accepted with him. On the basis of his provision of everything that is needful that I may be accepted by him. It was on that basis by grace through faith that anyone who ever was saved, even under the period of the old covenant, was saved. Nobody has been able to plead the fulfilled conditions of the old covenant for their salvation.
So the covenant of grace really is the new covenant. The covenant which Christ mediates according to Hebrews chapter 8. It's better. It's, it's laid out as being explicitly better than the old covenant. Since it's founded on better promises. And that first covenant is said to be faulty. Not that God made a mistake in setting it up, but that it wasn't able to bring about the things that it promised. It hypothetically set them forth before the people of Israel, but it was powerless to bring them about. Therefore, those promises were simply instructed for us about the way things are. If, if you would obey my voice and be covenant keepers, I would sanctify you and I would make you a nation of priests. I would give you all access to me. But the people of Israel, and God knew it from the beginning, couldn't have brought that to pass for themselves. Nor could we bring that to pass for ourselves if God put us under a covenant with the same conditions. If you, here in the 21st century, I'm talking to all of you in the room, if you will obey God's voice and keep His covenant, then you will be a nation of priests. Well, guess what? You'd never become a nation of priests. You can't do it for yourselves, just as the people of old couldn't do it for themselves. But here is the good news. Christ Jesus has kept the conditions of the Old Covenant for us. Christ Jesus has met all of the demands of the law such that Christ Jesus can appear before God and say, I merit the blessings. I merit the blessings that you have promised. And I merit them not only for me, but for all whom I represent. Which means that in Christ Jesus, we are counted as righteous. We are counted as covenant keepers. We receive the fulfillment of all the things which were hypothetically promised in the Old Covenant, but couldn't have been brought to pass by the people's own righteousness. We receive these things in and by the righteousness of Christ, which is for us. And so Christ has made us a nation of priests. What that means now is that God has inducted us, as it were, into the priesthood. He has torn the veil that blocked off the most holy place and said, come in. Those of you who are in Christ, welcome into my full, unfettered presence. Behold my glory. Pray before me. In my very presence, there is no more distance. We've been given the privileged access of priests. We've also been given the responsibility of priests. We are to, in some sense, and to some extent, represent the people to God and God to the people. Now, at first pass, this might seem to run against 
that verse that I quoted earlier in the sermon, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So how could we be mediators if there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? Well, certainly there's a sense in which that we can't make atonement for anyone. Right? We can't, we can't do anything for anyone which, which belongs to salvation. We can't grant that to them. We can't give that to them. We can't minister that to them. But we share in the work of Christ to some extent. And if that sounds a little weird, how about this? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, that sounds very weird, too. But... So, let's be, let's be careful here to delineate what these kinds of statements can mean. That Christ's afflictions, in one sense, have no lack. Christ's mediatorial work is his own. We can't in any sense, um, or sorry, we can't in some sense suffer for the world. And we can't in some sense act as a mediator for the world. There is a part of Christ's afflictions which are His alone. And there is a part of Christ's mediatorial work which is His alone. What Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 is not, as Calvin said, that his suffering is to give the price of redemption, for that belongs to Christ alone. But his suffering is to proclaim the price of redemption. There is a sense in which we can suffer for the world by laying down our lives to get the gospel out there, to proclaim, to... We've seen it even in our sermon this morning. We saw that we share in Christ's afflictions, and we bear witness to Christ's afflictions. And a servant is not greater than his master, and so on and so forth. There's a sense in which we share in that work, even though there's a sense in which it's his work alone. Likewise, we share in some sense in Christ's mediatorial work. Not that people need to approach God through us, that belongs to Christ alone. But there is a sense in which as we pray and as we intercede for the people around us that God would save them, we are acting in a mediatorial way for them. But we're not doing so as rivals to Christ or as alternatives to Christ, but we're simply sharing in, in Christ's work. We're saying, hey, we want people to draw near to God through Christ, and we're praying that, that God would work in them and bring them to that point where they do so. And there's a, a sense in which Christ's bringing, coming down from God to us is unique and we can't, we can't ourselves bring God to people. We are not God's tabernacling here on earth. Whereas we read in John chapter 1 that the word became flesh and, and the, the Greek word that's used there is the equivalent of tabernacle among us. We are not God's tabernacle. 
in some sense, but yet we are called, in some sense, the temple of God. So Jesus is, in some sense, the temple, and we are, in some sense, the temple. We are the, the face of God, in some sense, to an unbelieving world. We are the, the mouthpiece of God, in some sense, to the unbelieving world. And so what I want to say to you is, in, in some sense, in some sense, the priesthood points to Christ, but in some sense, the priesthood points to us. And we have this privileged access of high priest, but we also have this responsibility to act in a priest-like way, to bring people, to represent people before God, and to intercede for them, and to petition for them to God, and also to bring God to them, and to, to speak to them, and to act for their blessing, and, and to minister the things of God to them as the Old Covenant priests would do. I had a couple of minor points of application to make. But I think at this point I would just probably detract from that main emphasis that I want to leave with you. So let me pass over them and hopefully I'll have opportunity to circle back around in future we are the priest in the new covenant. Not me as a pastor alone, but all of us. The work of ministry belongs to us all, which is why I don't like the term the minister. Because when you say that so-and-so is the minister, what that means is the ministry gets done by that guy. But Ephesians 4 says that the job of church leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If the only ministry that gets done around here is the ministry I do, we're not going to be a very effective church. So we need to understand that I have a job to do, as, as do all the ordained leaders of the New Covenant Church. But we are not to be doing all the ministry. We are to be equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And we're all to embrace this priestly access that we have, that you have just as much access to God as I have. Sometimes people ask me if I can pray for them. And I, and I say, yeah, sure, I will pray for you. No problem. And I say, but why do you want me to pray for you? And they say, sometimes people say, because you're a pastor. And I know that God hears your prayers. And I take the opportunity to say to them, are you a Christian? Are you trusting in Christ Jesus to save you? And if they say yes, then I say that God hears your prayers just as much as he hears my prayers. We need to understand this, that we all have the access of high priests. The curtain of the temple that kept people out of the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. Not so that I alone could enter but so that all of you could enter too in and through Christ Jesus. We all have privileged access. And along with that privileged access is the responsibility to act as priests. In some sense, to recognize that Christ's mediatorial work is unique to him, but in another sense, to act as mediators between God and a lost and unbelieving world. And to intercede for this lost and believing world and to bring God to them and to minister the things of God to them. So let me leave you with that primary and central point of application 
of this idea that we all, all believers, are the new covenant correspondents to the old covenant priesthood.